Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Very exciting show today. One of my favorite authors, historians, Adrian Miller, a.k.a. the Soul Food Scholar based in Denver, Colorado. Adrian, I'm excited to talk with you, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Just I'm looking forward to this. All right. So I want to give people a little bit of background, a little context. Uh, I first was introduced to you in 2013 at a Slow Food Denver event that you spoke at. And I was very struck by the way that you're able to connect history with culture, food, and then very individually with humans that kind of have been a part of that story. And so you've done that throughout your career. And I want to give people an idea. Why is that the way that you connect those dots when you're thinking about writing about food, about culture, about people? Yeah. So the first thing I should admit, which loses me all street cred on the subject of barbecue and soul food, is that I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. So, but the way I went with people back is that my parents are from the South. So my mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad's from Helena, Arkansas. So those are the food traditions I grew up with. And um, I think food tells a story. And I've just always been curious about the backstory to the story. And that's why I really wanted to see like, well, you know, well, why do we eat certain foods? Why do we eat them on these occasions? Where does that come from? How does that speak to our common humanity? Um, I just have been always fascinated by kind of those issues. And so for you then, when you went exploring, you said, I'm going to go out and start to find these stories, find these people, find these cooking heritages, these culturally relevant uh, foodstuffs. Kind of where did that take you? How did you decide to kind of navigate that? And maybe give people a little context. You were in a completely different field. This was not your path originally. So how did it compel you to kind of get onto this path? Yeah. So professionally, I started out as an attorney. So I was working in a big corporate law firm and it just wasn't for me, man. It got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office <laughs> and uh, this is not a good place to be. So I was actually going to open up a soul food restaurant in Denver and um, I had a location uh, kind of where Cuba Cuba is now in Delaware. Okay, I had the, yes. uh, yeah, I had the inside track on that location, the early inside track. So I had a chef. I was raising money. And then I got a call from a Georgetown Law School friend who was already working for President Clinton in the White House on something called the President's Initiative for One America, which was all about racial reconciliation. And the bold and crazy idea was that if we just talked to one another and listened, we might realize we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So uh, she, was, yes. she was calling me, just asking me if I had friends back in D.C., because I was in Denver at the time, who would want to work in the White House. And I just said, tell me about the job. And she did. And so I did the same thing that Dick Cheney did when he asked George W. Bush, when George W. Bush asked him to find a vice president. I was the head of the search committee. My name was the only one on the list. And so I went to work for President Clinton for about a year and a half at the very end of his second term. Um, So at that time in my life, I wanted to be a senator from Colorado at some point. So I was going to leave the White House, come back to Colorado, start my political career. But the job market was really slow. 
Um, and so I was watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. And I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to the bookstore. I got this book on the history of Southern food. And the author wrote that the tribute to black achievement and cookery has yet to be written. And that's what started me on the journey, man. Wow. Um, so I, I kind of was doing it as a side hustle because I came back to Colorado, worked at a place called the Bell Policy Center doing, you know, because, again, I was going to be in politics. And I ended up reading 3000 oral histories of formerly enslaved people. I read about 500 cookbooks, a lot of them soul food cookbooks, but I wanted to put soul food in context. So I was reading a lot of American cookbooks and then the influences like French cooking, Italian, all these other things. Um, and then because I care about my topic so much, um, I decided to eat my way through the country. So I went to 150 soul food restaurants, 35 cities and 15 states. Uh, wow. and then I read, yeah. And then I read thousands of newspaper articles going back to the early 1600s uh, and 1700s because uh, there, there are companies that digitize them. And if you figure out how food was discussed in that time, man, it's just a treasure trove. Unbelievable. So here, here's one thing that struck me. I was like, maybe when you started on this journey, you lost some street cred being from Denver. Now being from Denver in the culinary scene, you get a lot of cred. I think being the lawyer might have been what actually lost you some of the street cred when you're going into, into soul food restaurants, for sure. Yeah. So you did your research in a big, massive way. And so did you know then you're doing all this research? Did you know how you were going to articulate your views on what you were seeing? Did you know that it was it was becoming an author? Uh, no, I didn't know that for sure. I knew it was leading me on some path, um, but I wasn't sure. I thought maybe I would just end up writing a series of articles. Because when I first started the project, I reached out to food writers across the country and I just said, hey, you know, this guy says that nobody's written the history of African-American cooking. Uh, does that square with your experience? And a lot of people said, well, there's a few authors that have taken pieces of it. But, yeah, nobody's done the grand project. And then they told me, hey, you're just not going to find that much because there hasn't been much written about African-Americans in food. Um, and this was before I started my research. And a lot of those food writers that I talked to didn't know about this newfangled thing called the Internet. <laughs> that gives you access to all this information. So uh, that was just, that was just me, a fad, you know, yeah, a yeah. fad, this <laughs> internet thing. Yeah. I wonder what happened with that. I thought, it, you know, I thought it would last a little bit longer, but yeah. Um, and so they were speaking from their experience, but the internet and those digitized documents just opened up a whole new world. So that was the product of about 12 years of research. So when I first started giving the fact that I thought I wasn't going to find that much, I thought the book was going to be just a third about the cook's, a third about the cuisine and a third about the culture that surrounds it. And then after a few years of research, I had enough to write five books. So I said, well, let me start out by writing about soul food, because to me, that was the most recognizable aspect of African-American cuisine. Um, and I say that carefully because I don't think soul food is the whole sum of African-American cooking. I just think it's part of it. Um, yeah. So I, I wrote that book and what the, I decided the way to call all of that information and organize it was to create a representative soul food meal and write a chapter about every part of the meal and explain what it is, how it gets on the soul food plate, what it means for the culture. Here's the yeah. book. I had to pull yeah. it, you know that. Uh, so Big just time. quickly go through, yeah, just to quickly uh, go through the meal. Oh, go ahead. Go please ahead. do, please do. Tell, tell, uh, us, tell us about the meal because I think it's fascinating having, having read your book and just followed you and your career and the conversations that we've had is you like really, when I say connect the dots and I, I say that as, as something that I do as well, you like really, Adrian, really connect the dots. And so I, I wanted people to kind of hear the depth of it. So tell us how yeah. you're connecting those. And then throughout this, as always, 
if there are individuals that like really for you represented that meal at a level that is worth mentioning, like, please do. We love name drops on this show. Gotcha. So uh, one of my muses was a woman named Edna Lewis, um, who died in 2006. And uh, she was the doyen of Southern cooking. And she's not as uh, well known as she should be. I mean, she's right up there with uh, legendary figures like Alice Waters. Um, uh, and The Taste of Country Cooking, which was written in 1976, is the, the essential cookbook about Southern cooking. Everybody should have that book. Because um, she not only talks about the recipes, but she puts it in culture. And she goes through the, the year. So you get a sense of what people were eating in season and what it meant to a black community in Virginia. So she was definitely my muse. Although she would not call herself a soul food cook. She would say that she was a Southern food cook which is very kind of interesting difference. Um, and then a woman named Jessica B. Harris, um, well-known uh, author. She's really the first person to kind of pioneer this idea of looking at the connections between West Africa and Africans in the Americas. So this idea of the African diaspora, and you're like, what are the commonalities in food that kind of show up in different places? But um, there's a common thread. And usually it's the West African cooking experience that gets translated in different ways. Um, so the, the meal that I created, which creates some arguments is that, um, I was trying to figure out if you were going to have soul food anywhere in the world for lunch or dinner, what was the meal you were most likely to have? So the entrees are fried chicken, catfish, or something called chitlins, yep. which are not for everyone. They're pig intestines, either fried or stewed. Then side dishes are, um, greens. And then the soul food greens are, uh, mustard, turnip, collard, kale, and cabbage. So if you discovered kale in the last five to 10 years, I always tell you, welcome to the party. We've been eating it yeah. for about 300. <laughs> yeah. uh, bl black eyed peas, mac and cheese. And it, mac and cheese is interesting because I thought it was too universal. I wasn't actually going to even include it in my book. But so many of my uh, black friends threatened to slap me upside the head that I just succumbed to peer pressure and included it. And there's an interesting it's, angle. It's there. so good. It has to be included, even though yeah. it becomes ubiquitous. And then is it just white noise? I, I hear you there. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, there's a lot of Af older African-Americans who believe that black people invented mac and cheese, which is clearly not the case. But I just think it's interesting that they think that um, candy jams, which are sweet potatoes. Uh, then I wrote a chapter about cornbread, chapter about hot sauce. And then I wrote a chapter about red drink, because I believe red Kool-Aid oh, yeah. is the official drink for soul food. Um, now, you have to understand that red in soul food cultures, red is a color and a flavor. So we yep. don't say things are cherry or strawberry or that it has hints of cranberry. It's just red. It's red. Um, but there's a lot. There's a generational shift happening. There's a lot of youngins that seem to like purple drink. Um, and then for dessert, Chappelle, I couldn't Chappelle crystallized that in oh, yeah, popular yeah. culture, yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then I couldn't settle on one dessert, so I wrote about four. Pound cake, peach cobbler, banana pudding, and sweet potato pie. I love it. So yeah. this is the important part of what is the thesis of this show. It's for us to value and focus on why and who before what and how. What I think is interesting is we're talking about the what. We're talking about the dishes very specifically. But for you, they represent humans and history and travel and the migration of ingredients and, and those pieces, I think are what I really am always compelled by what you're talking about. And so in this moment right now, I want to connect more dots, Adrian, in this moment right now, we talk about comfort food, a lot of chefs, a lot of restaurants that were of prestige at a high level right now are making a hundred pounds of pasta because people just need food. They just right. need nourishment and comfort. 
So connect right. the dots for us because we say comfort food in the Americana and some of the dishes you're talking about, fried chicken and mac and cheese are a part of that. Connect the dots for us how that became comfort food when that started out as soul food and or Southern cooking. Yeah, well, if you think in terms of comfort as a response to trauma, yes. uh, I mean, what, what is a bigger trauma than, well, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, slavery was a huge trauma. Yes. And so uh, people were looking not only to survive, but in those times when they had autonomy of over their food, they were looking for sustenance. They were looking for something that would build community. Um, and so uh, soul food became that. Um, it, it wasn't really coined soul food until the 60s, but that food was a long time part of African-American circles. And, you know, there's there's even an argument that the kind of re, the renaissance in Southern food and comfort food in the 2000s was a response to 9-11, kind of that national trauma um, that sparked not only uh, a sense for a need for comfort, but a sense for who are we as Americans and looking yeah. at our uh, our food traditions. And so that you start to see more fried chicken and mac and cheese um, in the 2000s in those times. So, um, you know, soul food has this narrative. It's empowering. Um, it shows ingenuity. Uh, creativity. Um, and one, so one part of the soul food narrative is that it was taking the very worst foods and making them delicious. But a closer look at soul food re reveals much more complexity. Um, a lot of things that we think of as kind of soul food were once, in a time, once upon a time high-end European foods. So like right. mac and cheese goes way back to the 1300s. Um, and it was royalty food for the court of Queen Elizabeth I, Richard II. But it becomes this you know, kind of this uh, comfort food several centuries later. Sweet potato pie. Henry VIII was grubbing on sweet potato pie <laughs> during his time. So um, so we see this need to like connect with each other and build community. And I think that's what we're going through with the COVID-19 response, right? Even though we are in isolation, we are still looking for ways to connect with each other. Um, and people are going and, you know, they're, they're cooking more, um, they're watching videos, they're displaying what they're cooking, talking about food. And I see, see us building these kind of connections. Yeah, it's, it's an important thing when you think about who's cooking for whom. So this is an interesting thing when you think about soul food. Quite often, the food that we're talking about was food cooked on a plantation by Black cooks for, for the home of the white families. And so I'm interested in that. And then you mentioned something, we think about food where peasant food, I think of, you were talking about French, I think of Coquevin, like just a, just a gnarly bird cooked so long that finally it was tender enough to eat because that's the only thing that was available to peasants turns into a high-end cuisine. Now we're talking about the reverse as well. Sweet potato pie and mac and cheese starting as highfalutin cuisine for royalty and then being passed down and said, how do we create this dish for us with our own ingredients. So when you're grappling with kind of that, the culturally relevant significance of that, where does your head go? So the first thing I think about is just given that trajectory you laid out, now we're seeing, seeing these comfort foods head the other way, right? Yes. We're seeing mac and cheese at, at, with lobster added. We're seeing all these re really interesting and funky iterations of fried chicken and other things. So it's interesting how it's now having kind of a split personality as vernacular cooking, you know, the cooking of of people, of, of down-to-earth people, and then we have this kind of elite restaurant cooking that's happening as well. So it's just really kind of interesting. Um, but then, you know, one thing I think about is, um, much like you see in kind of crime novels and other things, people are told to follow the money. I like to follow yes. the people. And yes. so uh, soul food to me was this migration from West Africa forced to the Americas. Um, and in the United States, soul food kind of coalesces in the American South. But 
it was called Southern Food or just dinner. It really didn't have the name Soul Food. It gets the name Soul Food when people leave the South in a massive migration called the Great Migration. And um, if you've ever heard of a book called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, highly recommend it. It's, it's a book that kind of tracks this uh, story through three families. But what happens when people leave a place and get to a new place? They try to recreate home. And if they can use the same foods they had back at home, they usually do that. But if not, they have to find substitutes. But one, And they're usually poor and they struggle. But once they get settled and start to prosper, they start remembering the good time foods of the old country and start eating them on a more frequent basis. That's what soul food is at core. It's the celebration food of the rural South that people brought to other parts of the country. Um, it takes root. And then people started looking at their new neighbors, some of them from other countries, so other immigrant groups. And they start experimenting and substituting, and it becomes its own thing. So I, I'm trying to get people to think of soul food as a migrant cuisine, um, and which is not something that people usually think about. But if you step back and just look at the food of other countries, especially what we eat in restaurants, it's usually the celebration food of the old country. Because restaurateurs want to show off the very best of their culture. And so instead of giving you the day-in, day-out stuff all the time, they give you the specialty dishes. Soul food has the same dynamic. Yes. I was literally going to ask you if you then view it as immigrant food, as migrant food. So I'm glad that you crystallized that for us because I think it's an important distinction. And if you think about that, it then belongs to America in a very different way, very much like we joke about how American pizza is or tacos or like, you know, all these dishes that come from other countries. But that's part of what America is good at is we are very good at taking things from other places and making them our own and finding a way to bring that into our culture. And the way that I always connect, I tell people, if you want to, if you want to talk politics with me and I don't want to talk politics with you, but if you did feed me, cause it's the most open I ever am. If I'm going to learn about people and follow people, I'm going to follow the food and I'm going to eat with them because when we break bread, I think we're the most close and connected we can ever be as individuals together. So I really, really like that. Now we're talking about American cuisine. We kind of moved into that realm. And yeah. you're, you're working on a book right now called Black Smoke and barbecue potentially is one of those things. It's like, what are the most American cuisines? And barbecue for sure is the top of the debate list when it comes to that. So you yeah. went into thinking about barbecue. You went into thinking about the culturally relevance of barbecue within the context of Americana. So talk us through that process for you as you're attacking another heavy, big topic when it comes to there's a lot of feelings that might get hurt or people that finally get put on a pedestal that needed to be. So break that yeah. down for us a little bit. Yeah. So um, first of all, barbecue is my favorite food. If I could eat barbecue every day without any health consequences, I definitely would. But I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. So one thing is um, I was noticing kind of the barbecue landscape right now. It's one of the hottest, trendiest foods, but you don't see a lot of African-Americans being celebrated. And that just does not square, square with my experience. So I was just like, well, why is that? So I started looking at the kind of the development of barbecue. And first of all, um, a lot of people think that African-Americans created barbecue, and that's only part of the story. Uh, barbecue right. is really Native American right. in origin. And it was a melding of kind of European uh, smoking techniques with what Native Americans were doing to smoke wood or to smoke meat. Uh, and then African expertise and seasoning gets all woven into this during the 18th century. Um, but for almost two centuries, African-Americans were the standard bearers of barbecue because a certain way of making barbecue developed that evolved digging a trench, 
cooking yeah. whole animals. You would stick poles in the sides of the animals and periodically flip them, chopping wood. It was just very labor intensive. So African-Americans were often called to do that work. Um, but over time, uh, the status of African-Americans in barbecue has dwindled. And I think a lot of it has to deal with current, uh, the way media treats food right now, um, the rise of competition barbecue, and the redefinition of barbecue from something that is menial but has delicious results to a craft. Um, so what African-American pitmasters were doing for years um, was uh, certainly appreciated and sometimes celebrated, but it wasn't thought of as a craft. And now, because of the, the conjoining of all of these factors, you can make a ton of money in barbecue. I mean, yeah. it's not you know, competition circuit. You can win $50,000 on one in one weekend. Uh, you know, you can have a master class. You can put out books. And so it wasn't really the case with barbecue for a long time that you could make that much money. And so I'm delving in. I'm trying to figure out, well, what changed? And why have African-Americans who were so central to the barbecue narrative for years, um, it was no big deal to be celebrated in the newspaper, local press, or even acknowledged by others that African-Americans tended to make the best barbecue to a point now where we're just a footnote in the barbecue story. I mean, let's let's go there for a moment. Is it because all of a sudden big name white chefs started getting into the game, started appropriating that that food style, and all of a sudden it became in vogue to be able to talk about it, to be able to have that food not just be roadside food and it became like a restaurant, it became a part of that lexicon versus it just being, to your point, a footnote? I, I think that's definitely one of the key aspects of it because you really don't see um, big name white chefs, what I call uh, you know rest, table, white tablecloth restaurant chefs doing yeah. barbecue until the 90s. You really don't start to see that. And it just ramps up into 2000s. But I think that factor coupled with media, I think the real key here is that the people who decide what stories get told um, weren't telling diverse stories. So they tended to just tap their non-diverse networks uh, and consult people who maybe, maybe didn't know a lot of African-Americans. And so they decided who was going to get profiled. And then, you know, you just see a marked change in the 90s of more and more white people, especially guys. Um, being sure. celebrated and connected with barbecue rather than African-Americans. And that you see that momentum build and build to the point now where you just have very few African-Americans recognized for barbecue. Well, the thing that was the catalyst to be like, oh, I really need to talk to Adrian, especially in this moment, was that you were on Vivian Howard's show, A Chef's Life, and she was taking you around, showing you some of the Carolina barbecue and the African-Americans that were behind that. And I really, it was really fascinating to me for a couple of reasons. One, because I know you and I could just see how absolutely excited you were at every moment of being able to be kind of in that realm and, and be a part of that community. And I know how much you immerse yourself in those communities. And also because somebody like Vivian, who's using her platform and she clearly, she's a, a white female chef who's super popular. And she's saying, these are the most important people in Carolina cuisine. And that cosign, I think, does two things. One, it plays further into the narrative that you're talking about. And at the same time, it also puts a highlight on the people that actually need to be highlighted in this moment. So for you, going through that process with her, reflect on that for a moment. Yeah, so it was really cool. So um, first of all, you know, North Carolina barbecue is just something we don't see, especially here in Denver. Yeah. Um, it seems like whole, because a lot of it is whole animal cooking. Um, and it seems like it's making a resurgence. Uh, that was the way barbecue was really made during the 1800s and most of the 1900s. Um, 
And so just to see it come back is is pretty remarkable. And um, also to see just the very different ways it was uh, performed in North Carolina. So I went to a place that was a Saturday-only place run by a white guy, but he had black and white customers streaming through there all morning. Uh, right. Went to one of the most famous places, Skylight Inn, a guy named Sam Jones. His uh, One of his distant relatives um, was believed to be one of the earliest barbecue guys, a guy named Skillet Dennis. Skilton Dennis, I'm sorry, um, who was selling barbecue from a, yeah, who was selling barbecue from a wagon in 1839. Um, oh. And then we went to a place called Boogie's uh, Turkey Barbecue, and it was interesting to see how they were taking turkey and making it in a North Carolina way, Eastern North Carolina way, um, because it was a response to customers asking for a healthier option. And turkey is one of the hottest trends in African American barbecue. Um, a yeah. lot of barbecue joints have turkey breast and stuff, but African-Americans are doing turkey ribs, turkey wings, um, chopped up turkey, pulled turkey. It was just really in interesting to see that happening in North Carolina. Um, so it was just, you know, we were in different parts, um, but we saw the tradition living um, itself out in different ways. But there was this commonality that people loved that that smoky taste with the vinegary and kind of slightly pepper peppery sauce that's usually a basting it or doused on it before it's served. Um, and I think North Carolina barbecue gets a bad rap because people have, there's so many bad versions of it out there yeah. where people make it one way and they just drown it in vinegar. That's not what that's about, man. I mean, that, that sauce is added throughout the cooking process. And when it's made the right way, man, it just gives the, the meat a depth of flavor that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. And I'm a huge, huge fan of it. And to your point, that had to be the way that you made barbecue back in the day because you couldn't go anywhere and just get 200 pounds of brisket. You right. had to get take the whole animal. So <laughs> I think it's one of the purest forms. And it's really interesting when you think about how barbecue brings us together and also creates a divide of competition. Are you into the whole hog? Are you, are you pork only? Are you burnt ends and sauce? Is it dry <laughs> rub versus sauce? Is it, is it beef yeah. only? Is it pork? Like all of these different things. And two things come out of that for me. I love competition being a chef. I absolutely love it. At the same time, like people, it's all really good. Get over it. You know, right. just go eat it. And, uh, and ribs, pork ribs or barbecue or beef ribs, whatever. I co-sign all of it. So for you, I'm going to put you on the spot. You got to, you got to decide for us if I'm traveling right right now yeah like anybody's traveling right now as soon as we're allowed to go and enjoy barbecue again in some city who and where are the places that are top of mind for you wow so um i'm a kansas city guy i, I think yeah. growing up in denver kansas city had a pronounced influence on kind of our barbecue here um so i love a place called lc's in kansas city it's not it's a well-regarded place by locals but you don't hear a lot about it um I, I just love that place and i love gates man gates is my favorite barbecue sauce. Um, so those two places in Kansas City. If you go to Memphis, there's a place called the Cozy Corner um, that I love. Hey, let, me stop, let me stop you on Kansas City because that's where I was right before oh. here because I got to I gotta give people some context. So there was LC's amazing. I would always tell people like, what are you looking for exactly? If it was burnt ends, I really like Oklahoma Joe's. The, you know, and you're at a gas station. Like it just feels like grimy and awesome. I love it. Uh, Gates. I would take people to Gates, the best barbecue sauce, that Kansas City style that I've had anywhere. And the women there are amazing. I love <laughs> taking people there, especially some of my 
like uh, more timid Midwestern white friends and say, we're going to get in line here and you're about to experience something. And they'll start yelling at you when you're seven people back. What you want? What you want? What you want? And if you're not ready, they skip over you. And I absolutely love the energy, the audacity of it. It is one of the greatest places to go and experience something that is so unique to them. Tell people about that from you. Where did that come from? Because it's almost like there's hospitality in it. Yes. Yet there's also this like, I don't give a shit who you are. If you're not ready, get out of the way. Like, where does that come from? Yeah, man, it's 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 a it's a really interesting uh, cultural version of love hate, because uh, you know when you go to a black run place and you see this in a lot of uh, white run places in the south as well. You know you're gonna be called baby sugar, you know all yeah. that kind of stuff. But man, if you don't have your if your game's not tight, they're gonna call you out. So uh, you know, it's the I best. just love that. Yeah. It's one of those you know, like. The- Bless your heart. You know, one of those sayings from the South, like, bless your heart. Like, if you hear that, you're in trouble. You, you're like, oh, what did I do? Wrong, for sure. Yeah. So I really love I that. Tell people, I often tell people when they're in the South, baby is used as a punctuation mark in sentences. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's just part of the vibe, right? And it's so. It's, sometimes it's so chaotic. I remember, I think we were at the same uh, Gates location because they have several of them. But I'm standing in line and things are going in and out of availability. While I'm standing yeah. still. Yeah. So I just love that. I love it. So you mentioned Cozy Corner in Memphis, maybe a couple other places that that uh, people can reminisce on or say, hey, that's my spot. Or now put a pin in the map where they need to go. Yeah. Uh, Cozy Corner and Barbecue Shop in Memphis. They have barbecue spaghetti, which is incredible. Um, there's a place called Grady's um, in uh, North Carolina. It's rural yeah. North Carolina. Uh, and I hope they come back after the COVID. Um, and then in Houston, there's a place called Burns and Ray's. Yes. Awesome. Um, and then in, in Austin, I like a place called La Barbecue, L.A. Barbecue. Um, I thought that was really good. I haven't I've had Franklin's ordered out, but I haven't actually stood in line and had that experience. Yeah, I'm um, really bad also- at standing in line. So Franklin's was a little rough, but they have so many. Micklethwaite uh, jumps out of me. La Barbecue is amazing because I want to set the tone for people a little bit, paint a picture for them because they are in a trailer. All right. And they're in a little, in a little like a hub of different food trucks. And it's really interesting because all the other food trucks there are basically accoutrement accompaniments for La barbecue. You got, you got places that you can have pre La barbecue or dessert type things because everybody in line is there for La barbecue. You're basically just hoping for overflow that one person stands in line and the other three people go get snacks at the other places. So it's a very interesting, again, from a culture standpoint, the way that the ecosystem of food around barbecue even has sprung up. And that is articulated very well there. Uh, any other places as we kind of like wrap up? Because I'm starving now. Yeah. So in Chicago, uh, Southside Chicago is a regional barbecue style that gets ignored. Um, I, I love a place called Honey One. Uh, barbecue and also there's a place called Alice's and Sunny D's. Those are great. In LA, there's a place called Bloodsos. Was uh, in South Central LA, but it moved to kind of the Hollywood area. That's really good stuff. And then in all places of like Seattle, there's a place called Little Reds, which does a Caribbean uh, barbecue kind of inflection, and that was really good. And then locally, I like Albert uh, Boney's downtown and also uh, Roaming Buffalo. Um, those are kind of my go-to spots here in Denver. This is a good list. There's a couple things. One, as some a fellow traveler for food, will travel for food. Uh, I appreciate that I've 
hit a lot of these spots. And then I'm also simultaneously ex- excited that I have a lot more places to add the list and that I had no idea about barbecue spaghetti. What did you say that was called? Yeah, barbecue spaghetti. It's awesome. So basically you take yeah. the pasta and instead of marinara sauce, you use a, a very doctored barbecue concoction and then you add grilled meat and you mix it all together. It is slamming. Unbelievable. I love it. Out of necessity comes ingenuity. I think is such an amazing thing. Ah, Adrian, I'm always inspired. I always learn something new every time I talk to you. And it is so important, the work that you're doing and connecting those dots and giving us an opportunity to learn about the people. Follow the people. I will absolutely be stealing that phrase and telling people left and right, follow the people because it's so, so important. They are what matter. The food is damn delicious, but only because it's a reflection of those people. So I really appreciate that. Adrian Miller, Soul Food Scholar, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Peace. All right. Have a great day. All right. uh, Go get some barbecue from some of those local spots. I'm I'm salivating here. Cheers. All right. Peace. Soul Food Scholar. It's just the way he connects the dots. I'm going to say it again. I think it's so important. And we get caught up in the food itself and the food is damn delicious, but only when it creates community, only when it is the the language that a community speaks, that a family speaks, that an individual speaks to their community and is expressing themselves in the most meaningful and simple way, feeding people. And I really wanted to talk to Adrian because in this moment right now, it's what really matters. We talk about the comfort food in this moment. What do you want? I just want to feel nourished and I want to feel like I'm connected to other people and food really, really does that. So uh, I'm grateful for the conversation, for the work that he's doing. I'm really pumped to check out Black Smoke and I don't do a lot of plugs on the show, but definitely Soul Food is a really, really important book. So check that out for sure. All right, everyone. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.